Hello and welcome to the Revenue Marketing Report powered by CaliberMind. This week we're doing something a little different, a monthly series that we're introducing called The Soapbox. So I am joined today by Drew Smith and I'm going to kick it over to him to introduce himself. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Drew Smith. I am the uh, CEO and founder of Attributa, a marketing consultancy that focuses primarily on marketing attribution. Wonderful. And today's topic, (laughs) marketing shortcuts or missteps, you decide. So I I don't know what would incite a soapbox moment more than that topic, Drew. I'm so glad we landed on it. (laughs) Yes, yes. This uh, This was a fun one that we got to this one in the first place. Yeah, yeah, it might have been a side rant of our own, but I'm sure we'll bring some of that spiciness into this conversation. So I'm going to kick it off with an interesting question. If we were playing buzzword buzzkill bingo for operations consultants, what would your leading phrase be? It'd have to be something along the lines of like, what's the next best step or like, what's the path that that people should be taking? Something along those lines. Oh, yeah, that hits me right in the heart because I feel you. Like, I hear that quite often and I I cringe a bit. But let's explain why we're cringing for those people out there searching for that. It's almost like a choose your own adventure. (laughs) I almost think it's like the opposite of choose your own adventure because it's 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 not allowing your targets, your audience, your, your, your people to actually choose their own adventure. It's forcing them down a path that they didn't choose, that, that they may not have chosen if they were given the ability to choose. And it's, it's, it's marketers doing that choosing for their target audience. And that's, oh, that, that gets me. That gets me. Yeah. Let's dig into it a little bit more. I think part of the reason it gets to me, I'm data-driven. Let's, I love analytics. However, I also know humans are humans, and it's really hard to predict what box they fit into and what thing they're looking for next. I also know that what worked last week probably won't work this week, and it's so frustrating. So if it was easy to do anything in marketing, we wouldn't need marketers, right? (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, you you wouldn't need to think through, you wouldn't need to build out personas. You wouldn't need to think through like, hey, what is what is the person on the receiving end of this actually care about? What what pain points are they trying to solve for? You would just throw them into one nurture that would work a hundred percent of the time because the data says it's supposed to work. And that's just not reality though, because we're all very, very different people. Yeah, we, we, there's there's no way that that's ever gonna work. Right. And and how is how can we predict the one thing that's going to tip us over into actually engaging along those lines? Let's talk about the golden path and how it's different than the next best. (laughs) So, so next best step is like, you know, somebody interacted with this piece of content. So like the next thing that they should interact with is this piece of content because that's what our data and our analytics tells us is what should happen and what, what typically happens. Golden path is like trying to find the one thing that unites all of our buyers and we just push everybody into that one golden path. And the assumption is that if people look at content in a very specific order of operations, then they're going to buy. Not because of the fact that we're engaging with our audience, but rather just the fact that they interacted with content and these particular pieces of content in this particular order, that means that they're gonna buy. And that is just, 
taking data and analytics and twisting it in a way that it should never be used. Yeah, I think the word that's popping to mind here is assumptions. <laughs> There's a lot of assumptions involved there. So it's actually one of the gripes I have with machine learning. You know, I'm somebody who does use it, but also makes sure that it's, I guess you have to narrow down causation and correlation and figure out if your machine learning model is actually tying to one or both of those things. And if you don't do that, you're making a lot of assumptions. I think the other problem with the golden path, and let's see if this resonates with you, is B2B businesses are dealing with a buyer committee and there are multiple personas on that committee. Would you agree that that's kind of part of the issue with a golden path? Oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, particularly the larger the purchase, the larger the consideration, the more people are going to be in the buying process and in the buying committee. And the CFO who may have final sign-off is not going to be consuming the same content because they don't have the same pains and interests as the director of demand gen who has a very tactical day-to-day -day problem they're trying to solve for. They, they don't, like Golden Path is not going to work for them. Like it, it's two completely different people. And I, I'm trying to find it because I, I, I saw something earlier about machine learning. It was, uh, it was earlier today. It was a meme that I saw about machine learning. It was very, very relevant to this conversation, although it was different and a little bit weirder, but it was, um, it was basically playing off the idea of like machine learning and AI in like the format of like weapons and war and stuff like that. And it was showing like humans, like looking, it was a cartoon showing humans looking over like a pile of robots, obviously humans defeated the robots, right? And the one guy saying like, how could this happen? Like the robots were supposed to be the best. And the other human goes, yeah, well, you know, the, 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 the robots were using sticks and rocks because according to their machine learning algorithm, the, victors of the vast majority of the historical wars used weapons like sticks and rocks. <laughs> Sometimes recency bias pays off. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it was just, it was a very real, and I totally messed up the meme because I, I saw it one time and I'm just going off of memory, but it was along those lines. It's like, yeah, machine learning can be good, but it's also like, it's also not always right. Sometimes it's, Data analysis is not always right. So you have to have that human element that looks and goes, oh, okay, well, yeah, they're using sticks and rocks. We should be using something a little bit, a little bit better than that, right? And that's that type of human level analysis that, that machine learning in its, current, in its current iteration struggles to be able to replicate. So like when you think about that golden path or next best action, like, you're missing that human element that gives you the ability to just like analyze things in a way that machines just can't currently do. Yeah. And we're not saying you shouldn't adjust your persona messaging and, and do different messaging to different personas. We're not saying that you shouldn't create assets specifically for those different personas. It's just you can't assume that those personas are only going to assume those assets made just for them. And it's really hard to predict based on what has happened in the past, even if you're looking at, at fairly recent information. So 
we're going through a huge shift in the market right now, those materials are probably really relevant and being consumed quite a bit versus three months ago when nobody was talking about a shift in the market and we were all just business as usual. Yeah. And, and I, I have a, like a really practical example of why this is like why next best action and, and golden path are, are, are not a great idea because if you were to take buyer personas, most organizations that try to do next best action, particularly try to align it by buyer personas, which is usually a pretty good idea. You think of the individual people and what do they need and here's all the content and let's, let's put it in there. So, but I just recently started my business and I am now have a title of CEO and I'm buying accounting software and I'm buying e-signature software and I'm buying CRM software and I'm buying all the software. Now, am I going to consume the exact same content in the exact same way as another CEO that's going out and buying an e-signature software that is a software company? No, no, I have different needs. Not to mention the fact that like one of my biggest things that when I go look at software because of my operations background is, does it integrate with other software? So is my e-signature software gonna integrate with my CRM and does it integrate with my, my accounting software so that I can automate things? I'm an operations professional, I care about that. Yeah, most CEOs don't. No, <laughs> this no, is not something that's easy don't. to use. Yeah, exactly. So when I'm looking at software, I'm looking for different features and benefits than a traditional like software CEO, because I'm not selling software and I have a very different background than somebody who's coming from like an engineering background. They don't care about that. You just like, if I were to be put into a next best, next best action flow based on my title and my responsibilities, you would get it completely wrong, completely wrong. Now I have one big caveat that I want to throw out there with this next best action thing. There's a very different thing with next best purchase and that's different. And I actually think that that can be used in a very good way. So like next best purchase is where you're, instead of saying next best action, we're like, what's the next piece of content I should read? The next best purchase is based on the fact that I purchased a people that purchase product a are, you know, 20 times more likely to buy you know, product C than product B. So I should be marketing to you product C first as opposed to product B. That has, I think has some merit to it. If you can get the data behind it, that has some merit. Like I always use the example of if you're buying shoes, I'm going to buy a pair of Nike running shoes. What's the next best product for me to purchase? What am I most likely to purchase? Probably a watch that tracks your miles and integrates with Strava. <laughs> oh, a watch might be good. Most people would say socks. Everybody that wears shoes needs socks. Yes, but I already have, I probably already have thousands of socks, right? And depending on the pair of shoes that I buy, if I'm buying like a very expensive pair of shoes, I'm probably all set on socks because I'm probably somebody that's running regularly. I'm using them often. I'm probably good on socks. So like the watch might be a good idea. <laughs> you can tell I'm married to a runner. You know, for, for somebody like me, it might be like, uh, you know, a headband to keep the sweat out of my eyes. Cause I got no hair to absorb the, the sweat, <laughs> you know? So, but like, it's not necessarily going to be socks, right? If you send me socks, uh, that may not work for me. I'm, I'm probably already have all the socks I need. So doing the, data analysis behind next best purchase, 
I think is actually something that, that is valuable and something that organizations should be doing. Whereas next best action is like, you're trying to force somebody into something that they don't want. And I think the trend is instead of forcing people into something they don't want, it's meeting your buyer where they are, when they want to be there, not trying to set a reservation for them without even checking with them if they're available at that time and place. Yeah, and it does. it's smart to look at where people are navigating to and trying to get to next, because if you have a bunch of people hopping on chat and saying, I'm looking for this asset and it doesn't exist, create it. You know, there's, mm -hmm. there's times when it makes sense to absolutely make some assumptions and then create the content. But yeah, you can try. Humans are weird. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's uh, honestly, that's like one of the, the, that quote right there, humans are weird, should just be like <laughs> on every marketer's desk because we all just need to embrace that humans are weird and, and we all look for different things and we're, we're all... We all different things resonate with us for different reasons, and uh, humans are weird. Yeah, I mean, I've worked with marketing consultants and shown them the copy that's getting a 70 80 percent open rate, and they're like, Huh, I would not expect that. And it's like, Yeah, that's why we A B test because sometimes the thing you think won't, it, it just it's hard to predict. It just yeah. is, yeah, yeah. So what are some other triggering, I have a few, but triggering phrases for consultants? And let's dig a little bit into why. Mm, well, I mean, the, the biggest triggering phrase for a consultant is, is uh, we've always done it that way. That's, that's the number one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's really hard not to say back, then why did you hire us and why are you looking to change things? Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. odd what people are closed-minded about when they know that something's not working. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Another one is, uh, so we went ahead and bought a tool. Now we need to figure out how to use it. <laughs> yes. If you're sitting in operations, I just got chills. Flashbacks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's one um, that will always stick with me where it, people buy tools, but they have no actual strategy behind why they bought the tool. That one's a that one's a big one. Yeah, I had a team buy uh, direct mail software because it was going to be part of their ABM strategy. And I said the first question I asked is, does it integrate with our CRM or marketing automation platform? Nope. Yeah, so why'd we buy it? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, there's lots out there. We could have chosen one that does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Same price point. Yep, yep. Yeah. What are some of yours? If it isn't in Salesforce, it didn't happen. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, to a degree. But when I hear operations folks pushing for people to do everything in Salesforce, like email, it's just... You're fighting an uphill battle. You might as well embrace the fact that people don't like to do certain things in your CRM and make sure the tool integrates. Like the if it didn't happen in Salesforce, sure. But you can get that through integration and not just forcing people to use that system. Yeah, because let's also think about the fact that like CRM and Salesforce just isn't good at everything. There's platforms that are better at doing certain things than CRM and Salesforce. No offense to CRM and Salesforce, because they do a lot of great things, but absolutely, we've iterated on things, and we, I mean, generally the community, have iterated, iterated on things and made platforms that do these things better, but they still pass the data back to Salesforce, or they can. So yeah, I mean, like, it's not always the best tool for the thing. Let's use the best tool for the thing. Yeah, yeah. Do you think about any others? Yeah, well, so I, I, the, the, the 
This is uh, this is a different one. It's kind of different because this terminology doesn't actually come up in conversation, but it's it's what people are looking for a lot is silver bullets. People are always looking for silver bullets. What's the what what caused our web traffic to go down? There's got to be like one thing that caused our web traffic to go. No, it's not one thing. It's it's the fact that, you know, I, I dealt with this a ton in 2020 because of the pandemic and like things were going on in the world and web traffic is just dropping like a rock. And I'm and being, you know, an analytics person, I got asked this question a lot. It's like, well, why did our web traffic drop? Well, uh, we have a pandemic and people are, you know, people's lives have been, you know, you know, impacted by that. Uh, we've got like huge protests going on all around the country right now. People are looking into that. Uh, we're in the middle of an election season. So we have people paying attention to politics and elections. We got like all this stuff going on and you want a silver bullet that we can just pull one lever and all of a sudden web traffic goes back up to where it was before. Right. That it's doesn't like, exist. Newsflash, Gary, the world is on fire. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And but but people were looking for the silver bullet. And, and even when you don't have stuff like all of that massive stuff going on in the world, you still almost never have only one thing that's causing a situation to happen in your environment. It's, you know, 10% of the impact is coming from this thing. 2% is coming from this thing. 5% is coming from this thing. 25% is coming from this other thing. There are no silver bullets. So, or, or, or very rarely, sometimes there is a silver bullet that like something's broken, but um, yeah, it's, it's rare that you have silver bullets. And I tend to see that thinking really often, well, from two groups. One is finance, accounting. They're used to everything balancing down to the penny. So they want to know for every dollar we put into each marketing effort, how many dollars come out on the other side. Once again, we're dealing in massive amounts of transactions for every sale. So it's a little hard to do that one-to-one -one math. And it's, it's also hard to unhook them from the idea that, well, one thing causes the other thing and it's a straight line. Right. The other group I struggle, have struggled with in the past are the really technical. I mean, I've worked in tech my whole life. So there's a lot of CTOs and CEOs that come from the engineering side they think they know exactly what's possible and push for it. Like digital, it's online, it's 100% trackable. We should know every person that's on our site. And I'm like, well, <laughs> let me introduce you to GDPR. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's, let's introduce you to privacy. And right. the fact that, you know, uh, Google doesn't release the search terms for organic search. Right, and Apple allows us to mask our IP address, so. Yeah. False. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, that that that's a big one too, and and because um, again, when you have like very technical folks, they're usually used to like, yeah, there's like a line of code that's wrong, and so I just have to go fix that line of code, and then it's it's all fixed. Yeah. Um, so sometimes there are silver bullets. Or I forgot to enter an expense line item, and that's why things aren't tying out. Yeah. Sure. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it, yeah, it, those are, those folks tend to have uh, silver bullet syndrome for sure. Well, trade show season is hot right now, so I have to bring this one up. Two days after the trade show, CEO comes by my desk and asks, so how much revenue have we gotten so far? <laughs> and this is especially funny because we have a six month sales cycle. <laughs>
Well, and it's also especially funny considering it's only been Tuesday, two days. Those were weekend days, and we haven't even imported the list yet. So, yeah, and Not I see that on the as, same timeline. No, no, no. And I say that as somebody. I was an event manager early on in my career for seven years. I managed over a hundred trade shows a year, and the list is never imported within two days. Almost never. No, because the sales team wants to go through and scrub stuff and flag people and. Yeah. There's usually a travel day where like I like the marketing person just has to get home and 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 compile the list and then sales wants to sift through it and and pick through the best leads so they can start working on them immediately. Pro tip, I have mixed feelings on that actually. <laughs> it's like pro tip, oh, don't let them do oh, that. I do too. Oh, but at I the same too. time, yeah. all time I hear time kills all deals and, and it's there's so much conflict, yeah stuff. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. But it's, yeah, the, the, we have the trade show where, where's the revenue? And it's like, yeah, we just met these people. Like we, we weren't writing orders on the show floor. You don't have, you aren't selling, you aren't selling phones. You aren't selling, you know, shoes. You're selling stuff that that's a large considered purchase and only one member of the buying committee was there. So yeah, yeah. your average. Yeah. I mean, if there's anything we should learn from this downturn is that transactional marketing is working less and less for large ticket sales. And it's all about relationship building. And unfortunately, it's really hard to get quick wins out of a relationship building strategy. I mean, it, it just, it takes time. So, and that's one of the things. So, so when we have CEOs and CFOs that, that ask those questions like, hey, or, or you know, CROs or, or the sales team, uh, you know, the leader of the sales team, when they ask those questions, the, for me, what I've seen work really, really well, this is, this is my, this is the part where I get up here and say, hey, like, here's how to, to fix that. Here's how to resolve that. And in my opinion, uh, an ounce of cure, or excuse me, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And what I mean by that is, don't wait until the trade show's over to set expectations for when revenue is going to come through. When you have your trade show planning sessions and strategy meetings, you should be setting the expectations. Okay, great. Now, here's when, so this show ends on this day, which means that the leads are going to get imported into the system on this day. And then here's our follow-up strategy. We're gonna have a handful of leads that said, hey, I wanna to talk to sales immediately. We're gonna immediately get those leads over to sales. The rest of them are gonna go into a nurture program or they're gonna go through this process, this communication strategy. The first thing that we're gonna do is we're gonna send them this email that is tailored to people that we met at this show. It's gonna have an offer for them. And then after that, we're gonna do this and this and this and this and this. And so we would expect to see our first opportunities coming through from the contact sales immediately group, probably within the first month after the trade show. After that, we probably won't see another round of opportunities coming through until the three month mark or so, at which point in time, you know, we're expecting to get 400 leads. If we get an average conversion rate, that would indicate that we would see about, you know, five opportunities from the non-contact sales immediately group uh, within the first three months. And then after that, you know, we'll probably see uh, another group of opportunities come in around the six month mark. We would anticipate around 10 of those. And then from there, it's gonna be a decreasing, it's gonna be a declining rate of return uh, over time because usually they'll become an opportunity in the first six months or, the, or they won't. Um, so, so if you set those expectations, 
because you as a marketer have done the work to understand how your previous trade shows have performed, then you're not going to have a CEO or, or a CFO or a sales leader that's going to come to you and say, where are the deals? You've already set the expectation for, for, for how that's going to work. And oh, by the way, go ahead and get your reports already built so that they don't have to come ask you. They can just go pull up the report and see the data live reporting on demand because you, you anticipated that need. So you gave them the tools to answer their own questions. And then you don't ever have to get asked that question. Right, right. Oh, 100%. I, this is why it's so important for marketing leaders to understand their data and have these conversations with their ops folks. So while I'm budget planning, I have these conversations because I know we've agreed on the source data for multi-touch attribution. We've agreed on the model. Everybody's fine. So I know that 20% of what's coming out of influence from trade shows is going to be, it's going to show up within the first month because it's in-flight deals and customers were already moving along. The rest of that is going to take place over time. So I can tell them while this investment is going to happen in Q4, we're only going to see about 20% of our return estimated within the first that quarter. The rest of that is going to come in the next year. And if you can have that conversation while you're planning and then reinforce it regularly, then you're going to be in a much, much better place. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You, it's, it's good to have the conversation up front during planning and then also, but you, ha, you also have to do the reinforcement because a lot of times what happens is if you are the, the head of marketing, CMO, whatever the title is, you, you're leading the marketing team, you're the marketing leader, and you have that preemptive conversation during the planning phase. When the trade show is actually being executed, the, a lot of times they're not asking you, the marketing leader, where the opportunities are, where the deals are. They're going straight to either the person that's coordinating the trade show or their operations person and saying, hey, where are the deals? And you aren't even included in that com communication. So the operations person has to know how to prevent that from even happening in the first place with their ounce of prevention during the individual, the, the planning process at the individual trade show level. And they have to have the data to back it up so that they can understand what expectations to set. Here's where we're going to be in a month. Here's where we're going to be in three months. Here's where we're going to be in six months. And here's your tools, your reports that you can use to answer all these questions on your own. So after the show, you don't have to come ask me where are the deals. All you have to do is just cool, pull up the, the report that I gave you and you can see it yourself. And I'm, I'm thinking a friend of mine who's in leadership said that their job is to be a poop umbrella. So if, <laughs> if you're getting way ahead of it and setting proper expectations and your team's still getting hammered with questions, it's much easier to step in and say, look, we had this conversation. You need to lay off and let them do their job. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because the, the, the alternative is, well, nobody ever told me that. Nobody ever set that expectation with me. So I'm, I'm well within my rights to ask. Right. And actually, not only am I well within my rights, I have to, as a good leader in the organization, ask these questions. But if you've already gotten the answers, you don't have to ask the questions again. If you keep asking the question, even after you already got the answers, that actually starts looking bad on you. Yeah. Another practice I see work that happens after the fact, instead of, I totally agree 100% on setting the right expectations ahead of time. I think we're totally on the same page there. A tactic I've seen go over really well, particularly with finance, is a retrospective on the events each quarter. 
and you take your sourcing data or the last touch, whatever model, newsflash that is attribution still that you're using, and then maybe multi-touch if you have it in place, and then you add in a qualitative factor that you're getting from the people who are actually at the show. I think, at least in my experience, we're seeing the return from individual trade shows change in how they look over time. We're seeing it be a bit heavier on the influence existing customer uh, in flight and lighter on the lead gen. But it is one of the touches that happens along the way. It's just not necessarily the last touch before pipelines being generated. So watching that change over time kind of makes it it makes it more essential than ever that you are, like you said, setting the right expectations and doing the reminders throughout. And then the retrospective helps the organization see that you're aware things are changing and you're open to discontinuing an investment if it's just not panning out anymore. But Kamala, that just seems like way too much work. Logic, but it's so logical. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That's 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 the I, I mean that's the refrain that that every time we push these types of processes, that's the refrain we get. Is it's, that's too much work. We don't have time for that. So it ends up being like, okay, well then you can be reactive. You can either be proactive and plan this out, and it actually doesn't end up being that much work because you've you've already planned it out. You know what to expect. You've got a process that you can repeat over and over again, as opposed to being reactive. And then you also have no lead time because when the questions get asked, you have to respond quickly. So you, you either are reactive and acting in panic mode or you're being proactive and everybody knows what to expect and when to get it and what the process is going to be. And, and everybody's on the same page as to what we're going to, how we're going to do all this. So anybody that's listening to this that thinks you don't have time to do this stuff, you do, you actually have more time than you think if you plan it out and you're proactive and create repeatable processes. If you don't and you're reactive and you don't have repeatable processes and you're constantly in panic mode, then you're right, you don't have time. But when you proactively plan this stuff out and you can just, all I have to do is just take the same deck I used last quarter and update it with the new numbers. And I already have all the reports built to generate the new numbers. It takes me a half hour tops. But if I have to go build the reports and panic, it's going to take me a full 24 hours to put it all together because I don't have a template. I don't have a process. I can't just do the same thing every time. Right. And it takes me 30 minutes to pull my numbers for a board deck tops. And that's because we already have the reports in place and everything automated. And it's so nice. And I really recommend that if, if you have room in your budget to try to get there, it makes life a lot easier. But I will say... One, visionary leaders who talk about where things are headed and what they're doing to adjust to what's happening tend to have better tenure and, and career viability. <laughs> yeah. And the, the second piece to that is, I guess, just know your numbers. I, I really, really hope people hear that and nod their heads. Well, and there's, and there's, a, there's, a, there's an interesting piece to that is, you know, you talked about identifying trends that you know trade shows are are skewing away from lead gen to being more you know an influencer right around right around when that opportunity is being created usually like right before the opportunity is created and that you we're seeing a shift in the way that, that trade shows are are influencing opportunities and deals there's only one way to be able to create that type of insight and be able to see those trends 
And that is you have to one, invest in the data. Two, you have to have a, a standardized reporting system that's built that you're reporting on the same things every single time over and over and over in the same way every single time over and over. Otherwise, you don't have consistent data that you can put side by side and create cohorts and be able to identify those trends. You're gonna miss all of that. You have to have, consistency is, is the only way to identify trends and changes over time is if you are consistent and you're reporting on things in a, in a, in a consistent cadence. If you're reporting on trade show performance every quarter and you're looking at, you know, where is the influence falling? Is it creating leads? Is it influencing existing leads? Like how, how is this working? Then you can identify changes over time. But if you're just like every once in a while, like ah, leadership asked me for a trade show report, I'm going to whip one up and it's just going to be like trade shows this year. And I'm not going to look at anything previous to this year. You can't, you can't see trends. You can't analyze, you can't see the change over time. You're going to come back, come in and say, Hey, uh, well, we, we're, we're showing $2 million in influence pipeline from trade shows this year. Is that good? I don't know. Seems like a high number, so it seems good. What did we do last year? I don't know. That's one of the cringy things about a lot of marketing board decks is I've seen a lot of variability from quarter to quarter because they're focusing on different initiatives, which is part of the business. But if you focus instead on overall bookings, pipeline, leads, and engagement, and consistently report on that over time, then your initiatives are just filling in the color behind the trends you're seeing. Yes, yes. And you look much better. <laughs> you need to have a foundational set of reports and data that you report every single time you report to the board. This is the foundation. If I'm not looking at the foundation on a periodic quarterly basis, I'm, I can't do trend analysis. If and then, and then you pepper in additional color with the, the different you know, initiatives that we're working on. Hey, we launched this specific campaign. Here's how this specific campaign performed. And here's the impact that we think that this campaign had on the foundational stuff that we just reported on. And here's, here's how that changed. Now you're adding insights and context and analysis that if you're not doing the foundational reporting and you're just showing the campaign all by itself, no context. No context. How did, did this did this do well? Did it increase things? Did we decrease things? Like what? How did this perform? And hopefully this is my last rant, but marketers need to get in the habit of looking at pipeline data very regularly. You should be able to spot whether you're ahead or behind total pipeline generation within week two of the quarter, not after the quarter's ended. I hear a lot of people say because it's not in their marketing automation program platform, they don't really know where pipeline is. Don't do that. Don't. No, because if you if you wait till the end of the quarter, you, you don't have time to adjust. You 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 need to like if we're not on track by the end of month one of the quarter, we have to we have to adjust. And if you don't even notice it until the quarter till the end of the quarter or till the quarter's over, you can't adjust. It's too late. You lost that quarter. So you have to you, absolutely the best the best reporting uh, ecosystem that I've seen um, was one that I had with a, a former client at one of my former agencies. Every two weeks, we met with the CMO. And meeting one in the cadence would be looking at pipeline, we'd be looking at wins, and we'd be looking at it in relation to the larger sales goals of the organization. So how is, 
So we'd be looking at the sales level goal, and then we'd be looking at marketing's contribution to the sales level goal. And we looked at, is the sales goal on track or is it not on track? And is the marketing contribution to that on track or is it not on track? And we looked at, and we looked at that you know, based on channels and all that stuff because they had attribution in place, so they had fantastic data. And so we were constantly looking to see how we were doing in relation to pipeline and, and deals. And so after month one of the quarter, the CMO knew as well, if not better than the sales leader, if, if we were on track to hit our numbers for the quarter. Because sales leader is probably, their job is mostly about closing business for the quarter. They're not as concerned about pipeline generation. So that is so smart. Yeah. And so, so that, was, that was at the two-week point. Then the next two-week point, we had another meeting. And in that meeting, we reviewed lead flow data. So we were looking at, you know, how many leads did we generate? How many MQLs did we generate? How many of the MQLs turned into SALs and SQLs and all that stuff? And we looked at the funnel. And so we were constantly, and then, so then the next meeting, two weeks after that, we'd go back and look at pipeline and deals again. And then it'd be looking at the funnel again, and then pipeline and deals. So every two weeks, we were having a check-in to understand how the business is performing, both from a marketing and sales perspective, with the CMO. The CMO was plugged in. The CMO knew how, how everything in the organization was working a lot of times better than the department heads themselves because the department heads themselves were so focused on individual opportunities and trying to get those across the finish line that they weren't always seeing the big picture. And we had, I mean, we had the best, it was an amazing uh, just environment from a reporting and data standpoint. There was nothing going on that the CMO didn't know what was going on. And I just got to ask, did it pay off for them? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They always knew where they were. And, uh, you know, uh, 2020 hit and we were having these meetings and, and obviously, I mean, things weren't, I mean, sales weren't always good throughout the years that we had this process in place, but we always knew where we were. Nothing was ever a surprise, which a surprise is great if it's sales through the roof. But if it's sales are down, you don't want that to be a surprise. You you need to you need to make make sure people are aware of that as soon as we know. Hey, we might be down this quarter, and sometimes that happens. Sometimes it's within your control. Sometimes it's not within your control. And and but if you are aware of it and it's not a surprise, then you can react to it and you can do something about it before it becomes a problem. Before it becomes two quarters in a row or three quarters in a row. Oh, there's so many things I love about that. Like, first of all, you're aligning with the core business goals, right? Like ultimately the business wants to know where did bookings attainment hit against quota? And if you're helping the organization move the needle that they care about, then you're a team player and you're valued. Like, yeah. Oh, that's so good. And like you said, you actually have time to respond and do something if you see something's lagging. And the funnel piece I really like in particular because naturally funnel stages are often defined along team handoff points. And if you're watching conversion rates, you can look for misalignment in places you can tweak and refine. There's nothing lost by looking at that information regularly. No. And the best part was we had, so every stage in the funnel had a goal for the number that we had to attain that was based on past conversion rates and basically reverse engineering the funnel from the sales attainment goal 
up the funnel using the conversion rates. So we knew that in order to hit for sales to hit their target, we had to generate X number of MQLs based on our historic conversion rates. And so we could tell not only, hey, we're, we're not on track for the sales target. Well, where's the problem? Is the problem at the top of the funnel? Is it in the middle of the funnel? Is it in the bottom of the funnel? Are we not converting opportunities to deals? Or is it that you know, we're, not, we're not converting enough leads into opportunities? We could tell where in the funnel the problem was by looking at the numbers and the conversion rates for that time period. So we always knew, like, where do we need to focus our efforts? What part of the funnel do we need to focus our efforts on? Because we, we, we did the work to understand how much, how many do we need at each stage of the funnel to achieve this overall business sales target. So the whole thing was aligned to the business's goals, as opposed to having completely disjointed goals where like marketing saying, well, we need a thousand MQLs this quarter. Why? Oh, because we had 900 last quarter. We got to go, we got to increase by 10%. Well, is that even like attainable? Does that even ladder up to a sales goal? Like what? Right, right. Or sales farther behind and you actually need 1200, my friend. Exactly. Exactly. So, and so the best part is, is as the business was adjusting their quarterly sales targets, because either sales is up or sales is down, right? So if we're, we're constantly quarterly adjusting our sales targets. Marketing would then quarterly adjust their targets as well. So it wasn't just, well, we generated 900 MQLs last quarter, so we got to get 1,000 this quarter, and then 1,100 the next quarter, and then 1,200 the next quarter. It was constantly moving around based on, on the shifting needs of the business, based on are we ahead for the year, are we behind for the year, like how are we doing? And so we were constantly evolving our targets and goals with in line with the business, completely aligned with the business. And this is what investors are looking for is the ability to have some predictability. And when you mm -hmm. get down to that level, you can. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, great. absolutely. And, we, and the best part is because, again, like I talked about earlier, this sounds like a lot of work. Well, it, it was a lot of work to get the system up and running. But once the system was up and running, if we needed, if sales goal changed, all we had to do was plug in the new sales goal into the, the, the formula and the formula would spit out however many, you know, MQLs we needed, opportunities we needed, you know, average opportunity size. Like the formula would automatically populate all that. And then all we had to do is just go just the, the dashboard so that we knew what the target was. I mean, it took a half hour. It was easy. It's worth the upfront work. It just is. It was easy. Yeah. True. Thank you so much for being here and joining me on the soapbox. Where can people find you online to network? Yeah, so the website uh, for my business is attributa.io. Uh, it is pronounced attributa, not attributa. It's attributa. Attributa.io. Um, you can uh, email us at info at attributa.io. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. You can find me all over the place. And we will put those links in the show notes. And for those of you listening who enjoy the show, rate, review, subscribe, tell two friends. It makes a difference. And for more great content like this, check out calibermind.com. 